0: Welcome to Syntalk. The Syntalkers around the table today discuss the animals in us. We'll think about the interplay between animality and humanity via ideas from various domains. Are we animals and to what extent? And how can we say? Where do the werewolves live when we do not see them? Is the difference between animals a difference of sense organs? Are there repressed animals inside us? Are humans an evolutionary pivot? What role do and have animals played in our self-imagination? How is the hierarchy between various animals conceptualized? What does it mean to be humane towards animals? What is the future of the animals in us? and would we keep pushing the limits of animality and therefore humanity. We are pleased and privileged to have three syn-talkers with us here today. Professor Peter Arns, he's a specialist in comparative literature and is at Trinity College, Dublin. His current research interests are the metaphors of dehumanization in literature and the arts. Prasenjit Biswas, he is an associate professor of philosophy at Northeastern Hill University at Shillong. His research interests are phenomenology, continental philosophy and tribal philosophy. And Dr. Devdar Patnaik, he is trained in medicine but has focused on mythology for the last 20 years. He lives in Mumbai. So, Peter, why don't we set the ball rolling with you, maybe with your favorite beast or mythical beast, the werewolves. You've thought about them for a few years. What are they? I mean, how does one think of them in relation to human beings? How has it been thought of historically? Um, Help us get a picture and we'll we'll maybe use that as, as a proxy of sorts to just think about animals in general and animals inside us.
1: Yeah, you're right. It's uh, one of my favorite topics. Uh, The term werewolf um, is interesting in itself because it combines um, the vir of Latin, which is V-I-R, which is man or human being, and uh, then wolf, obviously. The Greek had a term lycanthropos, lycanthropy is derived from that. It's the same concept, lykos, the wolf, anthropos, uh, the man, the human being. Um, so, so werewolf is,
0: etymologically, it is just wolf-man.
1: Wolf-man, exactly, right. yeah. Um, the history of the werewolf is is uh, quite long. It goes back at least to myth, to Greek myth, the myth of Lycaon, specifically, where um, the king of Arcadia was turned into a, a wolf by Jupiter for dishing up human meat to, to the god and was banned into the form of a wolf, Um and, and exiled to the silent fields, howling only like a wolf. So there's a loss of speech that comes with it. Uh, the myth then becomes a biopolitical reality in the Middle Ages um, uh, where people were expelled from the city for their crimes and uh, conceptually turned into wolves, into werewolves. Um, the old Icelanders had a term for that, the Varg, the V-A-R-G, Varg, Vargus, um, an Anglo-Saxon, um, also, the vargos, um, which is um, the wolf and the outlaw, so it's it's the creature it's the, it's the human being expelled into the state of nature outside of the reach of human rights um, this is a political werewolf um, the the werewolf then becomes a psychoanalytical paradigm under Freud Freud is Freud's case study of the wolfman it's a philosophical paradigm so it, but it, all it, of
0: these notions uh, yeah. presuppose the idea of civilization and culture don't that's they? right So yeah. there is yeah. some kind of some circumscribing and people are inside and outside that
1: that's right there's the um, the animal inside us which is implied here which which shows in 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 the imagination, the animal shows on the outside as well. Um, But is it always uh,
0: this uh, notion of exiling somebody from the inside to the outside? Or there's this element of everything being outside being considered as uh, something like werewolves or animal-like as well?
1: Well, exile and migration are big parts of this, uh, I'd say, in, in literature especially, but uh, also in this biopolitical reality of the, you know, the human being expelled into the state of nature. But it does become an internal conflict uh, in in the 19th century, in the 20th century, under Freud especially. and But also in literature, if you look at uh, texts like Jekyll and Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson, there is a… There's a there's an internal conflict here yeah, right. between the animal and the human. Right. Um, so the animal could reside inside. Yeah, the animal that resides inside us and that sometimes appears um, if we don't suppress it. So I think the psychoanalytical side here is huge in terms of repression and and release of repression. Uh, so, f- so Freud and, and Jung they're right on target here in, in the early 20th century. And and, they...
0: and does all of this refer to werewolves or is mm. there is there? I think
1: the the werewolf is a is a sort of broad category. At least in my thinking, uh, when when you look at popular culture, though, the werewolf is specifically. Um, uh, something between a wolf and a man, but uh, but, but all we- of
0: this seems to have a tinge of the villain or the evil, right? I mean, is there is there something virtuous about it? Uh, something in, virtuous in-
1: about werewolves? Um, there are there are good werewolves in in popular culture as well. There are there are misunderstood werewolves, definitely, but uh, it depends a little bit on on the cultural. Um, uh, on, on which culture you're talking about? I mean, a, a lot of cultures see the werewolf as, as as the evil that that turns up in, and, and this is specifically so in European
0: culture. And why wolves? Why why wolves? Uh, I mean, why isn't it bear? The, cow the wolf or? is
1: traditionally in European cultures traditionally a, a, a misunderstood animal, a nefarious animal. You know, an animal that's understood as, as being evil. And I think folklore, uh, if you look at German folklore, for example, that has a lot to do with that. You know, it's something that doesn't go away from the public, uh, from the collective consciousness. So are there a lot
0: of a lot of wolves in Europe? Is it just a matter of there are? Of?
1: There used to be a lot of wolves in Central Europe. They're coming back now into Germany and France, places like that. Uh, people are very worried about them. Farmers are worried. Parents are worried about them, um, about their about their children. Uh, so, so it's day
0: to day reality is making their way to folklore. Yeah, pr- pr- the, the,
1: the wolf has sort of gone between reality and myth, right? Because <laughs> in in Germany, at least the wolves were gone for a hundred years. Uh, they've been gone in Britain for at at least five six hundred years. You know, they, uh, Edward the um, wanted to exterminate them. Uh, but the are there werewolves? In, in Yeah, the yeah, there are werewolves in Irish literature and English literature, uh, especially in France. There are humans who are described as werewolves in French culture, for example. So there's example. a
0: way in which this is intertwined with yeah. memory.
1: Yeah, it intertwines with memory. It intertwines with, uh, especially with politics, but also largely with psychoanalysis. And if you look at philosophy, um, maybe for a later comment, um, someone like George Agamben, who's a philosopher, um, he thinks about the werewolf. So it's it's a category, it's a paradigm that spans different disciplines.
0: Um, uh, what maybe. are animals for you, David? as far as... The mythological imagination is concerned, and uh, how does what's the link with humans? I and mean, of course, werewolves is a special or a particular type of uh, thing, but if one were to think of it generally, uh, what, what would your take
2: be? So, um, there are two stories that come to mind uh, in order to explain this. One is from Vedic literature. Sure. In Vedic literature, we are told that uh, when Brahma creates the world, it takes the form of a woman and he falls in love with her, and but she doesn't reciprocate, and she runs from him, and he pursues her. And she takes the form of a cow, and he becomes a bull. She becomes a goose, he becomes a gander. She becomes a mare, and he becomes a horse. Um, so you find this transformation. So the primal being begins creation from the animal kingdom. So the animals precede humans? uh, So the story is told in that way. So the creation happens. So all the creatures from the smallest to the largest are created in this pursuit of the female form with the male form pursuing. And then, of course, Brahma is stopped. So that's one story. The second story, again, of significance, is which comes from much later literature, the Puranic traditions, where Vishnu appears as the preserver of the world and he keeps descending on earth uh, to restore order. And the first form he takes is that of a fish. Right. And matsya. He, matsya avatar. The Matsya avatar. And he engages with humans for the first time. So he engages with Manu, the first human. And uh, the story therefore goes, here, and it's significant because the term Matsya Nyaya, um, which literally translates as the uh, fish, justice, just, so fish justice, really means jungle law. Right. So the law of the wilderness, the, where there is no law. Uh, and so the fish comes and Manu uh, the fish tells Manu that save me from the big fish. Matsina is in the jungle the powerful feed on the powerless and that is okay. but he's asking Manu that you pro- I am the small fish so protect me and that is seen as the beginning of civilization where the helpless is being taken care of by the powerful. Right, and therefore there is the uh, dis- there's an inversion of there's sorts. an inversion of from prakriti to sanskriti, right? From nature to culture. Uh, mm. So, but s- is
0: it a form from to transition, Dave? That because you know, I mean, you don't. It's not like a flip, right? You don't go from one to the other. Does the animal still you know, the animal stay? Is the jungle still within us? Is the jungle continues? Does it continue to be within
2: us in some shape or so, form? Uh, one can say. See, this is the difficult question because. Um, if you look at from a uh, Indian philosophy angle, there are two schools of thought. Right. Um, and what came first? So the first is, did uh, matter come first? Did nature come first? Or did human consciousness come first? Or consciousness came first? Right. Not human consciousness, consciousness. And that's the thing. Like, you know, 13 billion years ago, the world came into being. Five billion years ago, the earth came into being. Four billion years, life forms appear from whatever we know as of now. So in a way, we say the world comes first and then life comes so from a scientific, uh, teleological point of view. But uh, in Indian thought also, they will talk about nature, prakriti. So depending on the goddess traditions and the tantric tradition, the goddess came first. She's the mother. From where come the gods? And the gods represent consciousness. And therefore, you first have nature and then you have human beings coming. But the opposite is also told in the Vedanta tradition that first there's consciousness right. and matter comes later. So these are the, the two big schools of thought which keep sort of at loggerheads with each other.
0: And in, and in your description of a while ago, Devdutt, is there a hierarchy? I mean, are there are there certain kinds of animals which are below or above others? Is there a hierarchy of sorts, um, even in the way things are conceptualized? See, the hierarchy
2: has- is seen as a function of the ahankar, the ego. Nature does not distinguish, does not see them as high and low. It's humans who make some things high and low. So uh, hierarchy is ahankar. In the atma, doesn't see this hierarchy. But so, as
0: far as the creation myths go, is there a sequence? And there is these? a sequence.
2: So normally, when you read the Purans, they will always begin with Mahabhuta, which is the elements. Right. Then they'll say Chara Chara, which is plants and animals, and then they will talk of humans or the manavas, the creatures with imagination. Basically, manavas means Manu's children. Manu comes from the word manas, which is, for me, the simplest explanation is imagination. I don't use the word consciousness in my work. I use the word imagination. Um, Of course, animals do have imagination, but not to the extent human beings, which sort of impacts other. And even
0: within animals, um, and we'll get to this whole business of animals in us, in a short while, even within animals, are there categories? And how does one do it?
2: How does one conceptualize it? So it, they it, have, it, One um, may have to go
0: into different traditions to do that. So you that. have
2: classical, I mean, the classical divisions are twice born. So the one who is born of an egg or there are uh, four-legged animals, two-legged animals, uh, animals with no legs, so reptiles. So basically these are old taxonomies, but there is no hierarchy amongst them. Right. Because all animals are born, uh, they all, like humans, like gods, are born of Brahma and his children. And who, uh, so there's a sage called Kashyapa. And he has many wives. One wife gives birth to the reptiles. The other gives birth to the birds. So all animals are children of Brahma. All gods are also the children of Brahma. All humans are also the children of Brahma. (laughs) That's so interesting. So all living creatures come from this one source, which is Brahma. So uh, living creatures. But, But they're not one womb. No, not one means. womb there are multiple wombs but one source so you could say the seed is one so kashyapa is the seed uh, although then you know you can find variations I'm sure. Sure. there are variations but broadly kashyapa is a multi-form of brahma and he has many wives so all the species that we see around us are born of these many wombs so yoni jai is a very important concept of what womb are you born right so we in astrology there is always a pashu yoni which animal womb are you born of so, uh, uh, from uh, those who believe in astrology and follow astrology, you uh, animals play a very important role, and there is this whole concept in popular culture of "chaurasi lakh yoniyo se manushya ka hota hai." So, basically, it means uh, after eighty-four lakh wombs that you transmigrate into, you get the human form. This is this is in the rebirth context? In the rebirth context. In the rebirth context, definitely human, to get the imagination in yourself, you are very privileged. You have So gone there through is a progression animal. of sorts? There is. And you find this in the Jatak tales also, which is the Buddhist tales. So Buddha goes through various forms, uh, animal, plant, uh, human, and finally becomes the Buddha.
0: And because there's a progression of sorts, uh, does some of that
2: past continue to live within us? It is. So, in fact, uh, the word dharma comes from battling the animal within us. Right. Our desire to dominate, our desire to be territorial, our desire to uh, fight um, um, to, is all seen as animal instincts. And nobility or atma is seen as when you are not dominating and you are not territorial and you are empathetic and you care for the other. So, all these qualities come under the human struggle to become human. And that's dharma. That's what Vishnu is trying to establish on earth. Dharmasthapana. I'm trying to establish. So uh, you can translate it as a, trying to establish humanity in humans. Right, interesting. And Prasenjit, obviously, uh, you know, you, you,
0: you, you know a little bit about tribal philosophy, at least as far as the Northeast goes. What's the imagination there? We'll go to the continental side and take up some metaphysical questions as we go along. But as far as this position of animal is concerned, Uh, within and around us... Animals
3: would be considered as uh, somewhat uh, a kind of an origination of the human race itself, of the human culture itself. And animals are supposed to be the uh, prior originary creatures from whom the human beings have originated, necessarily, across northeast cultures and animal habitat are the ones where gods live. So therefore, human beings actually are suspended between the animal world and the habitat where animals live and where gods and spirits also live. So therefore, human beings place in a sense is appropriated within the animal world. An animal world is made part of the world of the divine without any hierarchization. This actually goes against the notion of sacrificing
0: mm-hmm.
3: humans for the animals or animals for the human. Mm-hmm. It also goes against a certain kind of teleological understanding. So there's
0: no notion of sacrifice in these cultures you refer to. Uh,
3: no sacrifice for humans or sacrifice for animals. but what, sac- what can be sacrificed? What's the test? That's what that's very interesting. Sacrifice is somewhat like uh, sacrificing an undefined, uh, mystic element, you know, which is created uh, by a certain kind of a uh, offering, but it's not in the object which is offered. It's rather a kind of an artifactual reconstruction of one's relationship with a variety of natural objects that are offered to the Divine, which is a certain kind of a transaction between the animal and the human. Humans are also sacrificed and animals too are apparently sacrificed. But this apparent sacrifice acquires a different symbolic meaning. In the context of understanding the reciprocity between the human and the divine spirits, which are all around in a henotheistic sense or in a pantheistic sense, but henotheism or pantheism of the tribal kind is not something which is available within a religious pantheon. Right. Rather, it is more in a dialogic sense that henotheism operates or pantheism operates and also a notion of sacrifice operates and thereby making it more complex and more appealing in terms of a human practice.
0: I think the notion or the way in which Peter spoke of werewolves, they somehow almost seem like parasitic creatures. Yeah. And in, in your description, there's an element of symbiosis to the whole thing. I mean, there's, there's coexistence yes. and so on. Mm. Is, is there the
3: parasitic imagination as well? I mean, are there, are, there, are there bad animals? I mean, offering animals for curing someone in that sense, whenever there's a question of healing, Mm-hmm. Either healing the animal, an animal who is suffering from certain kind of a liver disease. Other animals, insects, worms or lava are offered as sacrifice to the divine spirits. And even for curing human bodies and ailments. Ailments... Uh, comprising of uh, usual elements and also specific gender related elements.
0: So what's the underlying metaphysics of all this? I mean, uh, why, underlying why metaphor is, is this one...
3: relationship with the blood, relationship with the basic constituents of the universe. Mm-hmm. One can see a kind of a primal imagination among the tribes about something that constitutes the very bone and the flesh and something that constitutes the rock and the river. Something that constitutes the animals, the skin, and the prowess of the animals. Something that is common in them, which, uh, for example, khasis would be calling as renew. Mm -hmm. Mizos would be calling as tlomayna. And uh, there are apatanis, they will also, you know. Call it in a certain way in the in the, by by calling it a kind of an intermediary world between the divine and the lived world as pensum, you know. So there are these complicated structures of meanings around uh, understanding the basic composition of the flesh and blood in tribal cultures of Northeast.
0: Are there hybrid beings? Because the werewolf is a hybrid being.
3: It's it's not just an animal or not just uh, man. So long as we there's can no keep. concept of hybridity, although there is a concept of part fish and part woman, Mm -hmm. part tiger and part man. How
0: is that different from hybrid? So, Uh, because there's a
3: fish woman... uh, Hybridity would uh, mean that both the properties are shared. Properties are shareable, interchangeable. But here, properties are not shareable or interchangeable, but it's a transformed kind of a property that a plant man or a tiger man issue... So, what is is tiger man like? Uh, A tiger man is a shaman. Who comes to cure a person who is suffering from incurable illness, who is terminally ill. Are these temporary beings or do uh, they do they I mean do they... whether whether they just appear as tiger man and disappear, uh, that is not known, that is mystic. There is this mystic shamanic practice attached to this kind of transformed beings which are part plant and part human, or part fish and part woman. So I think the
0: thing that I'm trying to understand, Prasenjit, is what does it mean to be part this and part that? I mean, mean, we are are just
3: calling it as part. The part is not composing a whole. The part is not becoming a total description of a being. But at the same time, part is remaining as part, experienced as parts, uh, in terms of certain processes of life. And at the same time, not being able to say teleologically from where it arises and from where it disappears.
0: Yeah. So so again, if we think of this in part terms, uh, Peter, what what are the parts of a werewolf? I mean, is there what 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 of a werewolf is man? What of a werewolf is wolf?
1: Um... Or is it's that not clearly question. distinguished? No, I th- listening to the two of you is very interesting, because especially the, uh, the the notion of sacrifice that you mentioned is interesting in terms of werewolfism as well. Um, because uh, as Giorgio Agamben in his famous book Homo Zaka um, instructs us, you know, the Homo Zaka is the one who cannot be sacrificed. He's, he's the werewolf, um, the, the person expelled from the community for, for their crimes, um, typically murder, uh, exp- they can
0: be murdered, but not sacrificed. Uh, he can, can be, be mu- He
1: can be killed by anyone, but he cannot be sacrificed. Um, because it, they because lack a certain kind of purity. Because he's considered to be unclean, and he's already with the gods. So the wolf part of of that is is the unclean part, and this is where your your toxic animal comes in. Yeah, the parasite, the wolf, in, uh, is a very ambiguous metaphor. He's considered to be. A parasite, a vermin. Um, in Wyoming, they call them. They call the wolf varmint. Yeah, um, <laughs> right. But uh, at the same time, the wolf is also uh, in in many cultures uh, revered. Uh, thinking of Mongolian culture, for example, or of tribal cultures in North America, or thinking of the National Socialists, you know, to 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 whom the wolves were uh, were stalwart and strong, and and they were revered. Um, Adolf Hitler, um, to, you know saw himself as a wolf, not least because of his first name, Adulfer, Ulfer, <laughs> which means the noble wolf. So there was a whole lot of sort of wolf worship going on in National Socialism. Um, but uh, but the, the vermin side of the wolf is interesting in terms of this this monstrosity that comes about here. Yeah, the wolf... Man, you know, as a monster, and my question to you would have been, you know, is there the notion of 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 monstrosity in tribal uh, cultures? Instead
3: in of your... monstrosity, there is this notion of being a trick star. A trickster, trickster. yeah. yeah. Exactly. A wolf man can trick a man or a
1: wolf. But the wolf is not technically the European trickster. The European trickster is the fox, ah. le, le renard no. in French, right? So right. the wolf is always considered as something uh, really bad or oh, stupid, but, or, but, but not a fox trickster But is figure.
3: a different character altogether. Uh, but in, in, the, in, in Europe, the... it's the trickster figure. Yes, yeah. yes. So instead of being uh, some kind of a uh, monster, yeah. it's a trickster. Yeah which can play around with the human beings in a right, playful sense right, right. and therefore there is a coexistence between such trick stars mm-hmm, and the humans mm-hmm, mm-hmm. who often appear for resolving some of the problems that yeah. human beings cannot resolve. Right,
0: yeah. So, Prasenjit, what stands in for evil? What, what's the image of the evil?
3: The image of the evil would be somebody who comes and destroys something mm-hmm. and that is mostly there in the peasant society of the Northeast India. My work on evil points out how peasantry constructed the notion of evil, the tribal peasantry, the tribal peasantry which is involved in an exchange relationship with other powerful communities, and in terms of those exchanges, they are on the losing side, and they are not able to bargain for their product a good, just price for themselves, and therefore they construe the idea of evil which is largely coming from the outside space and trying to uh, sort of get into their own sacred spaces and try to commit some kind of a sacrilege by coming from outside in the form of an outside spirit. But even outside spirit is not considered as monstrous, rather they are considered as visitors who visit you in certain times of the year, especially when harvest is ready.
0: So relatively more benign imagination for everything.
3: Uh, you cannot call it benign, but at the same time it's very pragmatic. Right. You can say. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> what what is the what is the relationship between animality and humanity as far as you can do that? Animality standpoint. and
3: humanity are both coextensive in this. So sense they lie on one spectrum? Uh, they, you cannot say in one spectrum because it's possible that humans understand the animal suffering, which is not possible in Western culture. Mm-hmm. most of the tribals understand how their animals are suffering, how their insects are suffering, and how an insect is looking for its partner. And there are very sad songs and beautiful poems of insect meeting its partner and how larvae gather in a certain season of the year and how this larvae wait for the human beings to be captured by human beings.
0: So what, So what is animality?
3: Uh, animality is this rich experiential repertoire of dealing with multiple kinds of insects, ohms, larvae. It's a kind of a subjectivation, a kind of a subjectivity, which is a liminal subjectivity.
0: Which is different from the subjectivity of being a human being?
3: Which is, uh, yes, it is different from the embodied human subjectivity because this liminal subjectivity is dealing with some creatures who are not human, but they are getting humanized in the process of uh, being incorporated into the repertoire of their relationship with those insects and worms and other such smaller characters over the ground and under the ground.
0: So, uh, Devdat in the way you described it, and I know you don't like the word consciousness that much, but e- even if the f- different animals come from different wombs, uh, are their subjective beings different? Are they thought of as being different? Is, or is the Chetana or whatever the same?
2: So, um You see, as you move from the world of the Mahabhuta Mm -hmm. to the Jiva. So, Jiva is a living creature. The living creature has hunger. That's the definition of a living being. You have hunger uh, because you want to eat something and you can also be eaten. Therefore, you have fear. So, hunger and fear are the two characteristics. You could be predator and the prey. Predator and the prey. But humans have the extra faculty of imagining. And because they can imagine, they can imagine an alternate reality an alternate reality where they are not predator, where they are not prey. So the biblical line, lion shall lay with the lamb. The Indian counterpart is Vag Bakri. (laughs) Vag Bakri being friends, the tiger and the goat being friends. Only when there is uh, no hunger can such a world exist Hmm. where there is coexistence. So I can imagine a world without hunger. So this is a world of abundance? Uh, So it is a world of whatever I want. It can be also deprivation. So it can be a world where there is no food to the world where there is no hunger. So So where does
0: evil enter all of this? See, evil
2: as a concept is... Is it
0: it tied to the notion of animal
2: or it's not? See, evil is a Judeo-Christian word. Hmm. It is found in uh, mythologies that believe in one life. So when you live one life, anything negative that happens to you right. um, is considered to be evil. Because how so do you explain? So
0: there is no equivalent in the Indian tradition.
2: Because you have rebirths, everything is explained through karma. You right. don't need evil to explain. So evil is a concept to explain things. Um, so you have de- the words like demons, which are used today, is because of the colonial translations. Sure. So the asuras and the devas both are born of Brahma. They are Brahma's children. Right. Devas live in abundance. And therefore, we, somebody called them gods. But devas are just devas who live in the sky with abundance. The asuras live under the earth. But the difference is the asuras want what the devas have. And that is where the problem starts. They they take, they the want. The devas don't have desires? They, it's already satisfied because they have the wish-fulfilling <laughs> tree. They're entitled. <laughs> they're uh, the culp of rikshar. They're yeah. the culp of rikshar. They have everything that they desire. So they don't want anything. But everybody else outside uh, the devalok wants what they have so the asuras want this what they possess and this creates confrontation because the devas say why should we give it to you it's ours so there is an entitlement to it and uh, the other says that i'm hungry i want it i so the asuras so the closest evil is coming from hunger this, the hunger, and you have food, and I am hungry, and therefore you start. The predator prey relationship is very important in uh, Hindu mythology. Therefore, the gods, for example, Vishnu is associated with the serpent um, as well as the eagle. The serpent eats the eagle's eggs, the eagle eats the serpent. Right. Or Ganesha is associated with the rat and the snake. The snake eats the rat. The rat eats, um, and he's a god of prosperity, but the rat is kept next to him because the rat eats grain. So you have this food chain playing a role. So there's all survival mechanics. It's survival mechanism. But evil, if at all, I mean, I I don't use the word, but uh, when humans don't indulge their imagination and rise above animal instinct, what does it mean? For example, animals will be dominating and territorial for their survival. Humans don't need to be because Prasanjit's concept, which he spoke of reciprocity, you know, the word yagya earlier was translated as sacrifice, even now in textbooks, but it really means exchange. Hmm. Humans can exchange. So it's a transaction. It's a transaction. So you don't have to grab. Animals grab
0: food. So are there ideas of pure and impure? Because we've touched upon this notion of sacrifice a hmm. while ago, and it so looks like at least in the
2: way comes from the monastic traditions. Right. The idea of purity comes from the monastic traditions. And therefore, India's caste hierarchy, everything when we talk about, we f- keep forgetting this. The notion of purity in Indian thought comes from monastic traditions. Right. You want to be out of materiality. Right. You want to be out of materiality. You want to be out of, therefore, animal nature. You don't want to be hungry. You don't want to be frightened. You want to rise above that which makes you... Um a living being. You go above. So what about half animals, there That are there half animals? Are there
0: other creatures which are half animal, half man? Well, you find them in
2: the temple carvings. I know most... maybe not as much as the werewolves. They seem to be way more prevalent than what no, you have the nag, the nagin. Hmm. The 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 serpent who is also human. But it's not really half half they transform from one they to the other they transform from one to the other so the snake people the they are called snake people they live under the earth they have access to fertility they are fertility gods they are associated with beauty and charm and magic and uh, um, uh, but, uh, you know but they're slithering creatures and they are um, uh, they mate and they copulate but they are magical they are wonderful creatures you worship them because if the snake is not worshipped fertility won't come for children for harvest, um, so are werewolves always werewolves? So do they also have this transforming character? Yeah, they go but, from one
1: to another. Right. There's a there's a lot of transformation going on there. Um, there there are differences though between narratives. Uh, there are those werewolves that can come back to being human. Uh, we have that in Greek culture. We have it in in, in some of the beast epics and the early uh, French culture. We we don't typically have it in in Germanic in this Germanic medieval concept of the wolf who's expelled. That's that's a one way. That's a one-way road. There's no coming back from that. Um, but um, yeah, there's. If you look at literature, and literature is what I do primarily. Uh, if you look at a, a story like um, Dracula by Bram Stoker, right, we have the vampire there who becomes a wolfman at times. He's, he's he lords over the wolves. He also becomes a bat. So there's this transformation going on there between two species, between two species, and back to human and back to back to the an, the non-human animal. And, and, uh, species, and if yeah. one
0: were to take a somewhat dry look at this, where do you think these things come from? Because, because you know, a lot of uh, werewolf uh, narratives can be traced to the fear of rabies and yeah. things of that sort, right? So yeah, does it have a, beginnings of that sort?
1: There is a medical side to to the werewolf stories. Uh, as early as 1621, uh, Robert Burton, the English uh, philosopher, talked in in his famous book, The Anatomy of Melancholy, talks about melancholia and insanity as as canine, yeah. There's, there's this, this concept of uh, melancholia canina, canine. Um, and you think that was a reference to rabies. Uh, and then lupine insanity was um, rabies uh, at that time wasn't. It wasn't identified wasn't, as being It wasn't so. identified as rabies. So it was, it was lupine insanity. This is something that in the 19th century, of course, where, where the wolf paradigm then also changes to another type of parasite, the, the microbe, you know, that uh, you talked about insects and, and, uh, and, and animals that are even sort of lower, lower level. And this is probably European thinking when we say lower level, where, where the, the microbe becomes a, a toxic animal. And uh, another famous story here is Hans Kafka. Uh, Metamorphoses in in 1915, where in the first sentence he talks about Gregor Samsa, his protagonist, who one morning woke up and found himself turned into a monstrous ungeziefer, is the German, which is the animal that cannot be sacrificed on gezebra in Middle High German because because it is unclean. But it is the translation is infinitely more difficult you know it is uh, you know what how do you translate ungeziefer into, into into any in, word in english no. there's cockroach there's vermin there's uh, insect there's beetle it doesn't quite hit the original yeah but there you have a, a different type of transformation away from the soul it's still the same location it's still the homo zaka you know the human who becomes expelled from the community so
0: there's an element of disease so somehow yeah, there's if an man element gets disease diseased, exactly. you kind of tend in those directions exactly
1: yeah so that's where the the whole werewolf uh, werewolfism becomes a, a disease uh, a discourse of medicine and and disease yeah and um, yeah, the Ungazifa I mean, Kafka was very savvy because in 1915, he seems to herald the racist discourse uh, thir- <laughs> uh, 25 to 30 years later, where humans were dehumanized in concentration camps as precisely that, as Ungezifa, as lice, you know, uh, animals of the, the lowest order. So this is where literature and politics come together very closely, I'd say.
0: Where are you on this, uh, Prasenjit? Because, you know, I mean, obviously there's been wow. a meaningful amount of work in philosophy on trying to grapple with the limits of humanity right what does it mean to be human are there, are there limits how does one think of that
3: i mean there has been some thought about limits between the humans and the animals right in terms of deleuze's famous notion of deterritorialization to go towards the animal world is a kind of deterritorialization of the human world and similarly human world can be deterritorialized
0: what, what do you mean when you say that?
3: Deterritorialized is to move beyond the notion of the species, move beyond the notion of a, of a herd or a pack or a collection and to look at it as if uh, it's a kind of a, uh, a spectacle of differences. Let's say in a pack of wolves, you can see the stripes moving in a hazardous manner. In a collection of human beings, you can see multiple colors. So much so that there could be a kind of an optical illusion about the very presence of the animals as well as of the humans. Right. And this is the experience of deterritorialization. Now, deterritorialization doesn't necessarily lead to homosecure. Homosecure is a kind of desubjectivation. As Kafka talks about transformation of humans into animals. And then from the desubjectivated animal, one tries to recover the human subjectivity through the human language, but, and through certain other kinds of mediation.
0: But in this de-territorial imagination, right. are there are there species barriers at all? Would, would you say that there's one animal and there's another animal?
3: Uh, that's a very important question. Distinguishing animals in terms of personhood or individuality yeah. actually presupposes that animals have to be attributed with a being. But no philosopher so far has done that. Even Heidegger restricted the use of the word Dasein, Das Mann, or being in the world only in the context of human beings, because human beings have consciousness and language. Animals do not have language proper, but whether they have consciousness and how their consciousness manifests is a very important question. So one aspect of consciousness in terms of their intentionality, in terms of their drive towards the other, in terms of their variety of functions, one can see that animals have something very much in common with the human beings. Both of them share uh, an immunizing system or a system of immunization. And animals have a certain kind of an autoimmunity. But if this autoimmunity is developed in the human being, that results into a certain kind of a carcinoma and certain other kinds of you know uh, yeah, so mutations. Uh, so... Whether autoimmunity leads to a mutation, and the mutation is a genetic mutation, does it mutate the phenotype and the genotype? These are deeper questions that are being asked in protein engineering and in DNA sciences. Because there are
0: there are all kinds of bacteria and all kinds of species living inside yes, us. Yes, no?
3: inside us. So therefore, so there is no such thing as uh, the species barrier that we apparently see is a kind of an optical illusion. Uh, If we use uh, an an Indian metaphor, it's like Maya looking at us as humans, different from animals, is a certain kind of an ontological ignorance, as Shankara would like to say. The the non-difference between me and the other all the time haunts us, our very sense of being and very sense of individuality. Heidegger also would agree to that or any other phenomenologist for that matter. The phenomenological distinction between me and the other, me as a human being and the animal as a being, is something that really is a blurring point. The more we make the difference, the more the differences get blurred. And that's a strange phenomenological consequence of our very process of cognition. And it's a limitation of our cognition itself, that we are continually making distinction only to blur them at the edges.
0: So, even in this case of uh, different animals coming from different yonis, mm. uh, you mentioned that the Brahma is the same. I mean, they, they share the same father. So, there is, again, this interplay of sorts between difference and
2: similarity, you know, in some way. It is. Uh, but, you know, again, uh, one has to see it in because Hinduism uh, mythology, at least, is so vast. Right. For example, when you see Vishnu's avatars, his first avatar is a fish. It has no limbs. Second avatar is of a turtle. It has four limbs, but no fingers. The third avatar is of a wild boar, which has hooves. And then comes the strange creature, which is half lion and half human. Because and this is it has claws and hands and then the human forms come. So you want to ask the question: Is this progressive? Is it to be seen teleologically? Is a question that we have to ask. Right. Um, uh, of course, then the caste angles come because the first is a Brahmin, and after which comes the warrior, and then comes the hermit. So it's you know sure. there are many things to be seen over here. But uh, what is interesting is the hybrid form of uh, Narasimha, the lion man, comes as a solution to a problem not in a it's so it's not a monster you know normally you would see this but it is a solution to a problem because a man wants to categorize the world saying i don't want to die at the hands of an animal or a human <laughs> so uh, the, the vishnu takes the form of something which is neither human nor animal so or both animal uh, and therefore solves the problem uh, but you see what is interesting is while we are at one level can see a Movement from and because you do see here stories where somebody is kicked out of the heavens from Svarga and he transforms into a reptile on earth. Oh. So you see that the, is there a, a there's you know, a downgrading downgrading. However, when you see the Shiva stories, whenever somebody shows animal instincts, a territorial behavior, his head is cut off and replaced by an animal head. Right. So Daksha Prajapati's head is cut and replaced by the uh, that of a uh, ram. Uh, um, uh, and uh, if you see Ganesha's story, who blocks Shiva's passage into the goddess's ter- territory, if I might use it, he cuts the head off. Again, it's a territorial war, and he replaces it with that of an elephant. What so, do you think? What What is the move here? Um, to me, this is, the conversation is constantly about rising above the instinct to dominate and be territorial, mm. which is seen as the animal instinct. But in humans, it is seen as a form of ego. The manifestation of ego. Mm. As long as it's in the animal kingdom, it's fine. But the moment humans display territoriality and domination and pecking order, ego, ahankar comes into play. And that is what I think is being constantly alluded to. Um, Ego comes into play when humans who have the imagination to outgrow this behavior using exchange, using transaction, where I don't need to dominate you. for resources, or don't want to be territorial about my resources, because I can do yagya, I can exchange. Then, um, so exchange or yagya is linked to dharma, which is rising above the animal instinct. So all that imagination, yagya, manavas, all come sort of together.
0: And in your world, in the literatures that you're familiar with, Peter,
1: again, is ego uh, presence of the animal? Um, I would say in, psychoanalytic, in psychoanalytical discourse it is. If you look at Freud, Freud distinguishes between the ego and the id, and the ego he also calls in Beyond the Pleasure Principle. In this book he calls it the, um, the ego, he calls it the reality principle, and, and the id is the pleasure principle. So I, the, the way I see it is that the id is then the animal uh, pleasure principle, which is desire and, and instinct, uh, which needs to be suppressed in Freudian discourse, uh, constantly uh, repressed um, uh, by by the ego to to function our daily lives. Uh, so f- philosophy and psychoanalysis pick up on this. You mentioned you mentioned uh, the the Dasein by Heidegger. Uh, Does he- werewolf
0: have a Dasein?
1: Um, uh, what, interesting what, what question. The, the werewolf uh, Heidegger would probably say, uh, well. Let's go back to Aristotle. Aristotle <laughs> would say <laughs> <Sure>. um, <laughs> humans outside of Athens don't have a Dasein. Everybody outside yeah. the city. Yeah, outside of the polis. The polis uh, in Greek is connected to the Greek word pelene, which means to be. Right. Yeah. So if you are not in the police, if you don't hold a political office, you are outside of the police. You, so you're you either no, a citizen or you, you don't exist. You have no being. You are, you're an animal, right? And Aristotle <laughs> called them idiotists. So it's nothing to do with our modern, modern word
3: you're idiot. You're already taking Prasenjit uh, off. I think there's some ideas
0: <laughs> going yeah, off in his head. Yeah. No. Uh, this so has
3: this dangerous consequence of Hannah Arendt's kind of yeah. pronouncement that right. you right. do not have right to have rights right. unless you are a citizen. Yeah. But this very status notion of being a citizen is like permanently inscribing someone in a territorial sense and also in a sense of uh, limiting and circumscribing someone to certain uh, rigid norms, practices or laws. Now this itself is a dehumanization (laughs) and this actually blocks any possibility of emancipation from the mere instrumentality of uh, power. And therefore, so, one has to break away from such a situation that one can always wield certain rights to have rights, mm-hmm. whether one is stateless or one is within a state.
0: So what was Aristotle's idea? I mean, is there was there a way of acquiring citizenship at all? Because if one happened to be outside of the polis, outside of Athens, well, it must have been a nice place to be in, but w- <laughs> what if you're outside? What happens then? Uh, what one, the one would have to
1: come into the polis. Uh, I think for Aristotle that was a possibility. Um, for the for the werewolf, for the Varg in the Middle Ages, it's not if the Varg returned to the city as an expellee, he would have been a Varg Iveum, which is a wolf in the sanctuary. So that was not a possibility. This return from the state of nature into uh, into the city with its rights, with its human rights. Are there,
0: are there modes of reconciliation at all? Uh, uh, there
3: is this uh, notion of census communitas in Aristotle yeah. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that is belonging to the realm of common sense, right. which uh, Agamben would say reconstructing this very sphere of common sense. So you can reconstruct this sphere of common sense even by being a werewolf mm-hmm. or even by being a complete outsider mm-hmm. by reconfiguring a part of the senses into a new form of living, Mm -hmm. which is the exercise of a democratic way of uh, finding out new forms of life or new roots for oneself, which is always possible. Uh, Establishing a new country Mm -hmm. or rediscovering oneself at a moment which gives you sustenance for your present uh, uh, insecurity or present precariousness. One has to move out of that vulnerability and precariousness by rediscovering oneself. That's a great point. That kind of a moment of uh, return is also there.
0: If you're outlawed and you happen to be outlawed with others, then maybe you just form a pack of wolves or pack of werewolves or whatever. Usually. and And you form a state for yourself or That's something right. like that,
1: that. That usually did happen when somebody was outlawed that they, they would have to bond with others in order to survive. Most famous case is Robin Hood, you know, right. the, yes. the guy who was banned into the woods and sure. found a, a brotherhood of, of wolves, uh, yes. so to speak. Uh, right. The Irish have that uh, the term Fionna, Sinn Féin is derived from that, which was the brotherhood of men <laughs> um, um, in, in the Middle Ages. Uh, so but that then did, over did time, happen. do
0: they end up becoming similar to the polis? do they do they end up configuring themselves with similar similar logic?
1: They would still be outside in the state of nature, but they would set up their own rules, of course. so there is some similarity with uh, with uh, having a, a sort of legal system which the polis has, but it doesn't mean that they have human rights right. Uh, Vis-a-vis the polis. Vis-a vis the police. Uh, that But obviously there must them. be some
0: yeah. interplay of rights within within that context. Exactly.
1: Within themselves, yes. But they're still sort of enclave apart from from the polis. Yeah.
0: What I find very interesting is that you brought in the notion of insanity somewhere, mm-hmm. maybe in the context of Freud. You brought in the notion of shaman somewhere. Mm. Is there? Is there an interplay between the idea of animal or animality and insanity in, 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 in some of our mythology is the way, or the way the Indian conception has been? And I'm sure there are many many traditions and many strands But because the whole thing is that when, when everything is good and fine mm. it's fine, right? There's nothing to do. There's nothing to imagine. There are no stories to tell. I think all of these things happen to be on the fringes where something either breaks down, mm. it's either in the case case of a disease or so something legal. Uh, so is that, an, is that an interplay with insanity? Somewhere? See, insanity is not
2: discussed so much as a kind of a human order hmm. and natural order. Right. So there is natural order, uh, which is the aranya, the forest where the animals live, and there is the human order. Where humans live with rules and regulations, reeti and niti, and um, you continuously have characters going into the forest. Right. So Ram goes into the forest and encounters. Um, so I don't find insanity as much as you see the animal instinct. For example, when he encounters what is called the monkeys, but the word in Sanskrit is vanara. right, which can be broken as vana nara, forest vanara. people, yeah. uh, or it can be as vaanara, less than human. Right. and therefore and they behave exactly like the band of brothers you have this uh, Sugriva and Vali fighting over territory Sugriva is the uh, outlawed monkey with his bachelor uh, and all the mates are with uh, Vali, who right. keeps all the females exactly how monkeys behave the right. harem uh, of the alpha and right. the alpha keeps and then when Ram comes and engages with them you find uh, humanity coming in in the sense that Sugriva the alpha is killed the beta becomes the alpha so uh, sorry, uh, Vali the Alpha is killed. Um, so Grieve then becomes the alpha but he's not allowed to be the alpha right. because that is becoming animal again so Ram tells you should adopt the son of the previous alpha and therefore establishes humanity so it's not the conversations on insanity um, is another space which comes in but in mythological terms it's usually about this uh, rising above the animal instinct and the jungle is not seen as a disorderly place or a place where sanity goes away but it is uh, sanity is not explored, but is but it, it seen as a more
0: risky place, that
2: It is a frightening place because so frightening. for humans, because you don't have position in the forest. You are an animal. You are uh, the 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 tiger will not distinguish between the sinner and the saint. You don't have a social relationship. There is no social relationship. You there is no hierarchy. There is no you. Uh, Ram is not king in the forest. Right. Pandavas are not princes in the forest. They right. are just. Forest creatures.
3: Is it possible to have social relations with animals? Mm, yes, uh, social relations with animals have been always conceptualized in in philosophical discourses. For example, even in Agamben, Agamben is thinking about a situation when an interspecies relationship is possible. Mm-hmm. He conceptualizes it in terms of animals are truly in the open. Truly in the open. Truly in the open. Human beings are never in the open. What does that because, mean? Uh, because Trust animals are
0: ab- to do that, but uh, ag- animals
3: that. can uh, expose themselves to the open. Human beings are always abundant to their own wishes, to their own desires, to their own being.
0: So human beings have inside outside. Human, human beings, beings have, have
3: inside outside and human beings are abundant in a certain way. Abundant to themselves. And that's an existential predicament. Right. Animals don't have it. So they are truly in the open. So the space between humans and animals now can be negotiated. If human beings can come out in the open, beyond the police, which is something called post-political, let's say, which is not pre-political and political, but something post-political, where you set aside the norms that regulate you, not to create a sense of anarchy, but to create a larger sense of openness, so opening about, towards a larger world.
0: So, what about know? the animals who are domesticated?
3: Animals who are domesticated are made servile and repressed. Mm-hmm.
0: So, they're less in the open as as. I other mean, they people.
3: are denied. They are open. They are denied the open by the humans. So, the, this is some kind of a proxy freedom. This is deanimalization of the animal. Right.
1: Mm, that's the way the wolf sees the dog in a lot of literature. Uh, yes. Ludwig Tieck, for example. Mm. Yes. The dog is the domestic uh, the dog as the domestic. So does uh, a wolf look a down wolf. upon the dog? The wolf uh, typically looks down upon the dog in in many of these stories, yeah. So
0: so uh, the wolf would would be more noble?
1: Yeah, because he's wild and uh, he can survive um, And is noble
0: because he's freer?
1: That's right. There is this term of wolf freedom that haunts uh, European cultural history. Which is a very ambiguous term of being free from the social contract, right? But also free at liberty to be killed by anyone. Yeah. Uh, so, but there's a certain pride in that that the wolf takes in some of the stories. You asked me about reconciliation earlier, uh, and about social relationships of wolf of, of animals with humans. There there's some wonderful rewritings of uh, German fairy tales by Angela Carter and others. Uh, uh, femi- yeah? so the feminist rewriting of this uh, uh, where, where women, women fall in love with wolves and, and form relationships uh, in, a, in a recent movie in Germany as well called Wild Wild a woman falls in love with a wolf and, and has a relationship with the wolf um, but a question I had for you is what do you make of Kipling in light of what you said about the law of the jungle and uh, you know the jungle book in Kipling where, how does mythology come into, into that?
2: See, um, it's also something that Disney does, right? It sort of uh, brings human... It anthropomorphizes animals and brings human power structures into the animal kingdom. Uh, So you have a Lion King, a story of a Lion King or a cub being raised by... And there is a nobility in animals and there are good animals and there are bad animals. So we are anthropomorphizing. anthropomorphizing. They're turning Mm -hmm. them into humans in our stories, which fables also do. And there are good animals, bad animals. Is that a Uh,
0: conceptual error? I mean, is it uh, erroneous to now? Of course, we have pets, and there's an mm-hmm. equation and in some some kind of intersubjective rapport that you strike with them, and so on. But conceptually,
2: is it an error? An animal would always stay an animal, and just as man would stay man. See, uh, you know, in in Hindu mythology, all the gods have vahanas, animals. Right. Uh, you know, uh, uh, animals associated with whom they ride. So uh, there's some properties associated with them. No, it's it's what is interesting is the animals that they ride. Uh, Uh, display human characteristics Mm. they have risen above the animal instinct at one level but it is interesting it, most uh, commonly the story of vishnu and his eagle mount garuda the conversation is very interesting why does he become the eagle mount because he carries nectar in his beak and refuses to take a sip of it because it doesn't belong to him <laughs> and that nobility so vishnu says will There's you be restrained uh, a... now that you are you are above an instinct you have risen above desire the pleasure principle you be, will def- become my will you be my vahan and he then Tells Vishnu, I, you want me below you, but can I also be above you? And he becomes, so Vishnu says yes, and he becomes the banner. So all the gods, they ride on animals, but their banner have the animal too. So the animal is both below and above. Right. And, uh, uh, you know, one can sort of read this into this conversation. Um, you know, does it, what does it mean? Is Are they trying to, but I do know that what is, when you say Brahma Vidya in the very Hindu sense of the term, it is rising above animal instincts, the ability to empathize. Empathy is a very key term. Sahana bhooti, um, atma gyan is to be able to empathize with everything plants animals birds the uh, so you become the sage the hermit who's able to engage with and connects with nature and realizes again at a advaita level and monastic level that i am not different from the other we are all connected through rebirth and recycles but what comes after that dev that does does that process even if one ends up acquiring
0: or attaining that uh, monastic ideal uh, does it lead to a simultaneous process of repression so that, and and, and when thought of in many, many iterations, and obviously a lot of these Hindu traditions have done that, and maybe there are some examples at your end. Is there repression
2: simultaneously, and does it lead to, what's the direction of the world in that kind of a world? So, rules are seen as domestication. So you domesticate. So humans are domesticated animals. We have been. While the hermit is seen as someone who rises above, right? Um, you know. So the polis would be seen as rules and regulation, if crudely, because the aranya and the grammar divide is there. But if I follow the rules voluntarily, for out of empathy, the same action makes me. S- superhuman. So that's a result of some kind of inner transformation. So, yes. So the, uh, it is not that, that I follow the rule, which is normal domestication. I have domesticated you into being So it's obedient. not extrinsic. It's, it's, extrinsic. Not, it's out of empathy. So the same act can be performed out of compulsion or out of empathy for you. As in a road, when I'm traveling on the road, I let the other cross the road first. Is It can be because the rule says so, and therefore I have been domesticated animal. Like given a chance, I would like to pounce and go first but because the rule says so and there will be someone who will judge me for breaking the rules um, um, but uh, you see that in in Hinduism there is no concept of God and judge and rules because of this reason because you are are supposed to evoke the divine within you and therefore when you uh, evoke the divine what is divinity it comes down to empathy right will you give your flesh so that another animal will live so it is the ability to rise above hunger and fear it comes down to hunger and fear Will you therefore? The uh, a god is someone who takes away your hunger and takes away your fear. And if you have outgrown your hunger and fear, you have risen above the animal instinct and therefore re- reached the realm of the gods.
0: Where are Not- you on this, Prasenjit? Where are you on this question of repression? Because you know, one way to think about this is you know, from wherever it was 14 billion years ago, 5 billion years ago, 4 billion years ago to today, and obviously, hopefully, there are billions of years later. Uh, can one totally suppress the animal inside us?
3: I mean, the animals also suffer a lot of depression. For example, when an <laughs> elephant dies, yeah. the other members of the herd, they come and they adore, keep adoring him. For a long time, they keep moaning. They come and touch their you know the lower end of their jaw with the trunk. Right. And uh, elephants carry this sense of depression for quite some time. And also, elephants do cry. I have seen if one member of their pack dies. But
0: that's intra-species. Uh,
3: no, but uh, this kind of an emotional because expression. Because
0: even the werewolves form these packs, right? Uh, I werewolf think
3: you, is a kind of a rather a kind of a mythical creature. No,
0: sure. I think the point is that within species, intra-species, there is there is empathy. You, you relate to each uh, other in some um, shape or form. A little
3: bit even within the species, there is empathy. But that it gets extended to other species, right? right. That's the important point. Elephants do uh, set up their relationship with other wild animals as well.
0: So it can be stated as a fact, as yes. a statement of fact, that yes. there is interspecies empathy. Yes,
3: there is an interspecies. And, and
0: empathy. so, wh- so what is the implication of that?
3: The implication is that the strict species division that we create in the human world, in terms of a kind of an overwhelming anthropomorphism, right. that creates a distorted cognitive perspective about who we are and who the other animals are. For example, whales and even dolphins, the way they communicate with human beings or certain other animals who come very close to the human being in terms of their emotional responses. Unless those responses are recorded, they are appreciated and they are represented properly in the space of shared emotions, we won't be able to extend our humanity beyond our own species being so we should not be species chauvinists which is speciesism uh, yeah species chauvinism uh, we we should be able to touch upon the heart of a bat as well as the heart of a rat and that probably takes us to the current innovations of enhancing the animal capacities right by changing their neurons by implanting certain things in the animal body not just in service of humanity, but in service of the larger natural outcome of it.
0: And you mean this uh, not just at the level of imagination, but you mean it uh, you mean it biogenetically?
3: Biogenetically and also very imaginatively. That's a creative kind of an evolution. Evolution which is not controlled by nature per se. Yes. See, one thing which doesn't, uh, you know, in the conversation I realized we didn't talk about,
2: is, that, you know, when an animal is hungry, it goes after food, but once the food is, uh, its belly is full, it doesn't continue to eat. eat it doesn't eat. eat for fun. It doesn't eat for fun. It doesn't hoard for the sake of imagined hunger. Right. Humans do that. Which is the flip side of imagination. Imagination. So the dark side of imagination is I'll keep creating wealth, wealth, wealth for hundreds and thousands of my generation and my people for my sake, and therefore I create the concept of my. Right. This concept of property. This is mine, it's not territory. So Animals have a cannot, very different sense of self. It's a diff, So humans extend their self through the notion of property, and it is based on an insatiable hunger which comes from imagination. So imagination creates property, imagination creates insatiable hunger, and therefore imagination takes away empathy. Mm. Which now in the animal kingdom, there is no insatiable hunger. It's territorial, which means they don't bequeath property. There's no notion of property. And therefore, empathy is not required, I would say, because it is sort of limited by its inability to imagine hunger or imagined fear. The fears are real. I might uh, use it in a very um, uh, crude sense, but humans can imagine and therefore you see around us this imagination. You have this ridiculous 1% of the world controlling 99% of the world's wealth. It's Why do you need... This, it doesn't it, happen in elephant kingdom. <laughs> yeah, because the the imagined uh, hunger of man, and therefore you see this in vibrant vision statements of people, and you see this in science, uh, you know, technocrats. You see this in politicians, and and it's also this notion of mind. This my people, not everybody, not humanity, not planet not interconnectivity, it is my people, my tribe, my vote bank. And therefore, it's not really a pack or a herd in the animal sense of the term. It's really a grotesque manifestation of the animal kingdom through imagination. Interesting.
1: One more comment on on this notion of insatiability, because that's exactly what the wolf is blamed with in the early beast epics, and and even today, that the wolf is insatiable, gluttonous, that's gluttonous. Yeah, and uh, and back in the in, in in the Middle Ages, in the beast epics, the uh, the, the wolves were considered, um, you know, the, the monks were considered wolves, gluttonous wolves. But even nowadays, there is a fear. Um, that wolves kill too many sheep. That they don't just <laughs> consume one one sheep, mm. you know, if they're hungry, but that they keep killing, and apparently that has been observed. Mm. Um, and I'm not sure. So in
0: that sense, wolves are not animal-like. Yeah, exactly. I mean, exactly. At, at least yeah, yeah, the yeah. other animals.
1: Right. So, but the the other thing you you picked up on is the, the, the this this notion of the projection, the human projection mm. onto the future, onto territory, uh, land use. I think one of the fundamental differences in perceptions of of wolves is between uh, sedentaries. And and nomadic people between the indigenous mm-hmm. and between um, you know the people who have developed the sort of sedentary culture you know they're so you... they're the ones who are afraid and this is something that happened as early as the, paleo- the the transition from the paleolithic to the mesolithic age when hunters and gatherers became sedentaries sedentary farmers the the fear of the wolf was on the rise because right. of because of shared food mm-hmm. uh, interests and and territorialism. Yeah? Um, so this notion of extraterritorialism. Uh, so that wolves Deleuze became
0: villains when we ended up settling down somewhere.
1: Yeah, they were made. Uh, I mean, there was a, there was respect and fear of the wolf um, earlier on in the Paleolithic age, about thirty forty thousand years ago. Uh, but as soon as settlement came, the, the, this fear was that then became prevalent.
2: Um, this ecosystem thing i don't remember correctly but there was this yellowstone experiment where the wolves were reintroduced yeah yeah right? And the new species was... emerged because yeah, it became exactly. an ecosystem because it was the predator was an important right. part of the ecosystem of course. Yeah. so perhaps because humans are producing too many sheep mm. you <laughs> well, know the killing is sort of a nature's way of balance i mean i'm just argue it know, just struck me as when you mentioned it there's a there's a book
1: now out by robert uh winder, a winder, it's called the last wolf, where he argues that with the killing of the last wolf in, in Britain back in 1290 or so, you know, Britain became uh, a land full of sheep and, and Britain's power, rise to power, is directly linked to the killing of the last wolf.
2: Um, in 1290
1: because the sheep then became you
2: know it became a country of happy sheep and and
1: wool production you know
2: but it is basically what you accuse the wolf of becomes you you become that wolf you become the wolf wolf. with an insatiable appetite you know it's like a wolf so the the British uh, men
0: replace the wolf
1: Yes, and with the, with the last wolf gone, you know the the sheep were happy, and and <laughs> uh, it, all of Britain became one sheep, one big sheep farm, and and hence the rise to power. This is one one theory, you know. That, but it's that, an interesting theory because
2: it just brought me back to the werewolf, right? Yeah, you yeah. killed the wolf, and you became the wolf, and you know, in a very that's so interesting. Right. Um, so social, you know. Right. But then
3: you you can look at other metaphors also. For example, ant hills, hmm. that colonies of ants, how they keep spreading, yeah, and the more they spread. They spread in the interest of sustaining the ecosystem. So therefore, it's not really limited to one episode or one anecdote of killing or eliminating. Rather, it's a self-perpetuating narrative which is substantiated by actual animal behavior from where we have to learn a lot. In fact, the language of animals, the signaling system and the way they communicate with each other that leaves us with a lot of cues about communication itself on which we need to really go for the next frontier of research in understanding the very nature of human language. That language is not just governed by a set of rules. Interesting. That language is open to the nature. That language can communicate moving beyond the frontiers set by the language itself. That language can touch upon itself and move beyond Uh, self-referentiality and then movement forward. Uh, That kind of communication can be seen in the animal world, which we should carefully notice and should bring into certain kind of programming about our language and which can go into our natural languages as well, if we really take that into account very seriously. Well, so that's, that's a, how we can look at the animal world in a far more interspecies, there are ways, relevant ways.
0: to be tapped into. So, what's the future, Prasenjit? Why don't we end with that? What's the future? the, what's the future, future of is, of the animal in us, of, of of this instinct in us? I mean, it, it seems I mean, like a necessity. This it's entire language
3: of instinct and this entire language of us and them is a remnant of enlightenment discourse. We have to come out of this enlightenment notion of the self. And try to see whether we can become altruistic, whether we carry the same genes or the memes that animals have, and whether we can enter into a more responsible relationship between us and the animals so that the boundary between the species could be neutralized a little more. And in the coming generations, it can be entirely opened up.
0: But this is not a world of tamed and domesticated animals, right? Because there would be... Several animals and there's so many
3: species out there, right? right because that would
0: continue to remain wild and may- maybe rightly so. It's very yes, difficult
3: to say. So, so we have to re resuscitate and regenerate the wild, actually, and have to go towards the wild a little more, and wild in a more human sense. Rediscover the human in the wild. What does that mean? It will mean that we would like to see a more virtuous animal world. By learning virtues from the animal world itself,
0: but that has to be reciprocated, right? It's a uh, now reciprocation. Bit like being kind to the tiger, I mean, something
3: that you. remains unreciprocated also goes into our own story of self-love and self-preservation. Sure. Uh, so, so self-love and self-preservation and the possibility of reciprocation from the animal world will go side by side, in an ontological sense. No, absolutely. So that we are not close to each other anymore we are rather open to each other on to the
0: future what's the future peter what's the future We're of this instinct what's the future of the werewolf what's the future of the animals and yeah. us?
1: i'm all for destabilizing boundaries i'd say so i'm totally with you in in saying you know we need to we need to listen to the animal world i think we need to accept the animal world uh, within us uh, and be be in proximity to animals, in a better way than we have been so far. The the, the mere sort of notion of uh, that we are the ones with language and animals are not is something that uh, it's time to throw overboard, I think. This is a, an old Aristotelian notion that only humans have, have language. Um, so the f- the future, I think, well, is language
0: that, in a very specific sense. As, yeah. I mean, there, there's communication systems and there's language. There's but communication again, and there's language. I mean, yeah, when yeah, if we course. define something, then obviously we have a good chance of defining it in a favor. Right, but exactly. I, mean, I think it's defined that way already. So,
1: I think there's hope for the future. There are sanctuaries everywhere. I'm I'm a firm believer in having animal sanctuaries and having sanctuaries for for humans as well. What's your so.
0: instinct on the myth of the werewolf? Do you see the myth this? myth of the werewolf. Thousand years uh, out. Two thousand years out.
1: Uh, I think it'll persist as long as wolves stay in the memory of humanity. You know, the wolf has, uh, again and again, become a mythological creature. But wolves are coming back in places like Germany, and they're coming back in North America. Uh, places in North America are being rewilded, which has a huge impact on uh, on the wolf human relation. Oh, you know, sure. places like Idaho, where the Nez Pierce um, Indigenous are are you know they're they're rediscovering their cultural heritage through the presence of wolves that had been gone for a long time in the Lower Forty Eight. Uh, Yellowstone is another example in terms of environmental uh, health. So they're not going so anywhere anytime soon. They're they're not going anywhere anywhere soon. I think, um, unless of course we have people like the American president who who uh, <laughs> opens the floodgates to uh, to wolf killing, wolf culling, uh, um, anywhere in the United well, States. Well, they've been around much. for a while, you know, so I think so they'll that's, figure that's something problem,
0: out. Yeah. Where are you on this, Dave? That will end with you. What's the future? What's the future of a lot of these questions i mean there is obviously a common strand to this
2: and you brought in the idea of instinct a few times see the um, the conversation you know from a, is often technological everybody's talking about technology but technology is actually just a sophisticated form of domestication you're domesticating nature you're domesticating humans through apps through computers it's domestication it is you see in the animal kingdom it's when they are part of the ecosystem it's involuntary It's involuntary reciprocity. There is reciprocity, but it's involuntary. It's instinctive. Humans have to learn voluntary reciprocity because our culture depends on nature. And therefore, culture has to take care of nature. This voluntary reciprocity is missing in the technological, technocratic narratives, which is about humans becoming parasites on the planet. We are becoming the parasite rather than having a symbiotic relationship. This requires a psychological intervention, not a technological intervention, not a policy change, but everybody's talking about policy, which is technological, uh, or, an, or an app, or a computer, or a thing. We're not talking about human mind going through transformation, which is, I feel, I mean, uh, I mean, it might sound chauvinistic, but the Indian thought of Atma Gyan, Brahma Vidya, not the Buddhist way which is saying that walk out of the world and become zero and you know, moving towards... Uh, uh, transcendence but exchange yagya trans, uh, engaging with yagya with nature exchange and communication with nature i think we are not aware of our hunger and other people's hunger therefore empathy comes down so I the think,
0: idea is not to float above all this but to go but into to engage. the engage
2: so empathy for me is where how do we make people and have and how does more one get empathy uh, so How do you become empathetic? If I find that answer, I will tell you. They teach it in Denmark. They teach it in Denmark. You know? oh. It in Denmark to oh, it must be kids. a course. Yeah, it you must can be take a compulsory a course. course. A compulsory 10-step <laughs>
1: process, I'm sure. I'm not sure the Danes are more empathetic than other people, but yeah. at least they teach I'll it, domesticate yeah. you into being
2: empathetic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, that's what this whole thing is. Like, I'll domesticate you into being good and I'll domesticate. How do you make it voluntary? And that is the million dollar question. But that, whatever it is, it has to be voluntary you know it the voluntary nature of it, it therefore is the because human animal if you don't if you force it down my throat I will repress it the animal inside me will want to dominate and fight back someday or the other at uh, the other I will not be dom- humans will not be domesticated rules regulations because we are animals and also. that is the thing our desire so the animal in us Refuses to be domesticated. It's
1: Freud's return of the repressed. Return of the repressed. <laughs> right, so exactly.
2: you know that's we are continuously the technological approach to things is about domesticating humans. I think we have to discover in, in the name of freeing them up. In the in the name of freeing them up. So it, it, and it's, the conversation it's, is how do we discover our humanity? Right. Which you know the word dharma comes. Therefore, it's so subtle. The word is, you say dharma is suksma, but sukshma doesn't mean subtle. It means psychological. Right. It's a psychological, but it's a personal journey. It cannot be a education system because absolutely. that is domestication again so it it's is one by
0: one person by person, person self by self person, yeah. interesting i think that's a good note to end this on thanks to all of you for making it and we look forward to having you soon again thank you mm,
3: thank, thank you. you for coming thank, thank you, you.